The most detailed and significant treatment of homosexuality in the Bible is found in the first chapter of the most important letter in the history of the world. Those are weighty words about our text, aren't they? And so we must tread carefully, gently, truthfully, and biblically as we study these words, as we study the longest passage on homosexuality or same-sex relationships in the Bible. So let's prepare ourselves in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Father, these are strong words, words we'd rather skip over. As we go through Romans, words that we'd rather skip, we'd rather preach and listen to something else, but these are your words and these are good words. These are truths that we need right in this moment. Oh, Father, give me wisdom, give me love, give me discernment as I preach, and help all to receive your word as holy and helpful. Bless us this morning and warm our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Redeemer Church, it is wonderful to see you this morning. If you're new to us, uh, I'm Pastor Dave. I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer Church. I'd love to meet you after the gathering today. I'll be down here up at front. I'd love for you to meet any of our Connections team. They're wearing badges. There's also a booth set up outside of the door. I'd love to say hi. Uh, we'd love to uh, get your information so we can keep you updated on uh, the life and ministry of our church, including uh, announcements like Pastor Scott made uh, this morning that in two weeks we'll be at the Movenpick uh, at 4 p.m., so up to about four times a year, we move from this location uh, to other places. Uh, this time, it'll be to uh, Gar Hood, so make note uh, of that. Well, after a bit of a break, and we've had a break, we've, we've looked at Malachi. We've looked at uh, what does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be one with Christ, union with Christ, as Pastor Morgs took us through those sermons uh, in our celebration of Advent. Uh, we had Christmas Eve, and then last week, uh, we had uh, a sermon on being ready for 2023. So as we jump back into Romans today, let me give us a bit of a reminder of the kind of the main summary, the main point, the main thesis of the book, along with an outline of the book. So just to remind us, or if you're new, just to tell you how we're summarizing the uh, letter to the Romans, here is how we're summarizing it in one sentence. It's to say this, that God has welcomed us into his family, and so we are to welcome others into his family for the glory of God. So God has welcomed us into his family, and so we are to welcome others into his family for the glory of God. So the first major section, we take that first part of the summary, God has welcomed us. After the introduction, which is in the first 17 verses, we see uh, the section entitled Condemnation from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse uh, 20, and we see bad news. Paul starts out with some really bad news. Everyone has sinned, every single one of us, me included. We've all sinned from the first humans up until today, and each one of us deserves death and judgment. So there's, there's bad news. Romans starts out with, with the worst news, and yet then there's a turn in verse 21 of chapter 3, and we see good news. Paul doesn't leave us there. God doesn't leave us there. We see justification in Romans 3.21 on through the end of chapter 5. God hasn't left us for dead. God hasn't left us 
dead. Jesus, fully God and fully man. We've sung of his amazing love just a moment ago. Love came down. Jesus came down to earth. He lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live. He died on that cross and then on the third day, he rose from the dead. On that cross, taking his people's place. It was an atonement. It was an atoning sacrifice. And by believing in him, by repenting of our sins and believing in him, we can be saved and have eternal life. That's good news. So Paul starts out with the bad news. Paul moves to the good news that we're saved. But once saved, we don't just sit back. We grow in our sanctification. We see that in in Romans chapter 6 on through 8. It's the process of growing more like Christ. We don't become sinless, but we do sin less. We grow in holiness. Then we have an explanation regarding Jews and Gentiles. We see that in Romans 9 through 11. Now that the the, the gospel, now that God's promises have come to the Gentiles, Paul answers the question, well, what about God's promises to Israel? And then we see the end of that first main section, and Paul transitions to the second, and we are to welcome others. So God has welcomed us into his family, and so we are to welcome others. And we see in chapters 12 through 15, application. Now, the whole book is applicable, of course, but in these uh, chapters, we see very specifically Paul applies the truths that he'll have taught in the first 11 chapters. And then Paul concludes the book in the end of chapter 15 and all of 16. So again, we find ourselves today in that section called condemnation. So we'll be there today, next week, and then the first uh, few sermons uh, in uh, February as well. So again, the summary of the book, God has welcomed us into his family, and so we are to welcome others into his family for, for the glory of God. Let's keep that main summary in our mind as we look at our verses this morning. So regarding points today, I only have 17 less points than I did last week. Some of you were nervous, weren't you? Some of you thought I really had 17 points. I could see it in your eyes. But alas, three points today, 20 last week. If you missed the sermon last week, 20 ways to be ready for the year 2023. You can check that online. But today, only Three points uh, was a Redeemer record last week of 20 points, but today just three, and here they are. I'll give you them up front. Exchange, judgment, and grace. We'll see an outline of three points, exchange, judgment, and then we'll end uh, by looking at grace. Well, as we walk through this text, I know you who are on our email list would have received a, an email from me this week as we approach a a, a difficult subject, you may be experiencing different emotions as we walk through these two verses. Maybe you are attracted to the same sex. But before we look at these verses, I want to say that you are loved by God. He made you. He made you and all of us in his image. You are loved by him and you are loved by us here at Redeemer. We hope Redeemer Church is a safe place for you to be. You may have these feelings. Maybe you've even been trying to repress them. You've been trying to 
struggle with them, trying to stop them, or maybe you're living them out in a relationship even now. Or maybe you've kept that truth about yourself hidden from everyone. Even today, sitting here, nobody knows how you feel. My prayer is that even if these words today are hard to hear, I want you to know that we're glad you're here, and I hope that you hear these words in the context of love. God brought you here to hear his word today. Well, maybe you've never experienced a same-sex attraction. You might wonder, uh, is there a reason to listen today? Well, but all of us have had friends or family members or have known or will know others who are, who are in same-sex attraction relationships. Maybe you've struggled to know how to respond to a loved one. Well, church, we all need this sermon. It's a delicate subject, and yet it's talked about openly in the world and taught clearly about in our word, in God's word. So the goal of the sermon today, the, the goal of what we're doing is not to teach Pastor Dave's thoughts on the matter, but it's to look at what the Bible has to say on this matter. And so as we approach God's thoughts, here's what I've been praying for myself in the last three days. I've been praying for myself three things. One, for carefulness, that every word uttered from my mouth would be careful. And so I ask even up front, forgive me for the imperfections which will come. But my hope and prayer is to be careful. Uh, my second hope and prayer that I've been praying for three days is that I'd be compassionate. I pray that my words would be filled with love, care, and compassion for all. And my fourth prayer is for conviction, to teach the Bible clearly, to not hide from the truth, but to shine the light on the truth. Well, with that said, let's start with the first point this morning. So again, three points. The first point, number one, exchange. Exchange. When we think of the word exchange, we might think of uh, many different things. Some of us exchange gifts at Christmas time. Uh, maybe you've purchased an article of clothing that's been too big or too small, and you take it back to the shop, and you exchange it for another one. It's the idea of giving up one thing for another. Well, again, in this section of Romans, in this section of condemnation, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, we see very quickly a series of three exchanges, three exchanges where humans give up one thing for another. So in verse 23, there's an exchanging of the glory of God for images. Then there's the exchange of the truth about God for a lie in verse 25. And then there's the exchange here, the third exchange, verses 26 and 27. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged, there's the word, there's the idea. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, we don't see what the women exchange 
until we get to the next verse. Look at verse 27. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we observe that verse 26 is pointing out the same thing we just read in verse 27. Women exchanged relationships with men and were physically intimate with one another. Verse 27 tells us that men did the same thing. They reversed what was natural in God's created order. They exchanged God's design for marriage for something else. Now, we see this exchange throughout the Scripture, starting in the very beginning. There, there's a language of exchange throughout Romans 1, which I've mentioned in the series of three exchanges that point back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis, to the very beginning of our Bibles. Verse 20 in Romans is a reference to creation. Verse 23, animals, birds, creeping things, all described in the creation account in Genesis. Verse 25, the creator himself is mentioned. Verse 26, the Greek version of the, the Old Testament uses the identical words for image, likeness, and man. And then there's the language for lying. Verse 25, verse 27, verse 32, allusions to the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. Now those themes can be traced back to Genesis, as can the clear biblical teaching of marriage itself. In Genesis, God created male and female to be complementary to one another. Though the woman was made out of man, but she was different. Even the words Paul selects in our text today are important to note. Rather than using the normal words here, the normal Greek words for man and woman, he uses the same language as the creation account male and female. There's a focus here in the text. There's a focus on the sexual distinctiveness of the two genders. They were created to eventually leave their father and mother, and while not all are able to have biological children, it's presumed that at least some will or many will. There's a procreative role in marriage. And then listen to this, man and woman Male and female, husband and wife, are to be joined together as one flesh. Now, there's something supernatural about marriage, something miraculous, that those two flesh actually become one. Two become one, but only man and only woman are talked about as becoming one. From the very beginning of the scriptures, from Genesis 1 onwards, we see that there's one-way intimate relationships are to be portrayed. One man and one woman in the context of marriage. This exchange in Romans 1 parallels the exchange of Adam and Eve there in, in Genesis. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, didn't they? They thought they knew better than God did, exchanged God's truth and provision for the lies of the devil. They ate of the one tree that God had prohibited. God had given so much, a smaller limitation one could hardly imagine. 
And yet Adam and Eve thought they knew better than what God thought. The New Testament only confirms this teaching. Later on in the Gospels, Jesus only affirms the creation account regarding marriage. And then he says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When finally, what is the ultimate biblical picture of marriage? What's the ultimate marriage in the scriptures? Well, it's Jesus and his bride. It's Jesus and his bride, the church. Well, this beautiful biblical picture only works if marriage is made up of two different but complementary entities. And friends, we are not like Christ. He is our bridegroom. Our marriages, our earthly marriages only point to this heavenly marriage. They're but a shadow. They're but a glimpse. They're but a type of the heavenly marriage that we as believers will experience for all times. Pastor Kevin DeYoung says marriage is to be a symbol of this divine design, two differentiated entities uniquely fitted for one another. Now, homosexual practice is sinful because it violates the divine design in creation. Now, God is the author of marriage. He instituted it. He created marriage. And what God has established we are not at liberty to change. This is not a new exchange in our day. It's been documented that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were engaged in same-sex relationships. The Roman emperor Nero was famous for his relationships with other men. But the Bible always rejects this lifestyle from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through to the end of the New Testament. God rejects this. We've looked at Genesis. We've looked at God's design for marriage. We see this supported in a number of other places. We see it in Genesis chapter 19 where we see the opposite, where we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, we see same-sex sin there. And throughout God's word, those cities are synonymous with this particular sin. Now there's a, a place in Italy called Pompeii. It's a small town in AD 79. A volcano erupted very quickly and covered up that city. All the people perished, but the volcanic ash on top preserved much of the city. And so we can see what the city looked like almost 2,000 years ago. And under the volcanic ash were the preservations of the city and the people. And one observation was that there was a thriving homosexual community there. Amidst the graffiti is an actual reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, not long after Genesis, we see that the book of Leviticus refers to to this sin. Chapter 18, verse 22, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. It was very clear and the penalty was death. Chapter 20, verse 13, in the book about holiness, the scripture is clear that this is unholy. The New Testament supports these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, along with all other kinds of sinners, Paul says that the homosexual offender will not inherit the kingdom of God. Another consideration is when the Bible speaks of divorce, it speaks only of a man and his wife. Well, in our passage, the teaching is clear. The men and the women, they were abandoning God's intention, and they exchanged what was natural for what was unnatural. The physical intimacy is for one man and one woman in the context 
of marriage. To accept something different is to reject the Bible. To say two men or two women can be in a relationship together is not simply about homosexuality. As author Rosaria Butterfield says, any debate over homosexuality is never a debate simply over homosexuality. The issue is the infallibility, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of Scripture. See, God knows what's best. And we as his creation, we're not free to reject the Bible. We're not free to rewrite rewrite God's word. We don't have the authority to alter the master's handbook. The Bible must be our authority. Now, one quote I think is helpful is from a man named Luke Timothy Johnson. He's a well-respected New Testament scholar who actually supports homosexual behavior even among Christians. And he admits what the Bible has to say. Listen to these surprising words. I think it important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. What exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. Oh, friends, the authority of Scripture is at stake. We can't put our experience over truth. We don't have the authority to exchange God's truth for our own beliefs. When we do what Johnson is saying, we make ourselves the authority over God. Even a theologian acknowledges this. All of our sin's history really is an exchange of God's ways for our ways. It's an exchange for God's truth for what we believe and what we think is better. We think we know the better path for fulfillment, but the tragedy is we never get there. The more we try, the emptier we become. Well, friends, we've seen the exchange. Second, we'll see judgment, the judgment that comes as a result of exchange, when we exchange God's ways for our ways. That's the second point this morning, judgment. Now, Paul doesn't actually tell us what the penalty or judgment is in the text, but we do see at least two things about it. First, it's a giving over to the sin. When we think of judgment, we might think of getting struck by lightning, but Paul has a different idea of what the worst kind of judgment is like. When Paul writes in verse 26, because of this, He's likely pointing back to verse 18 and appealing to God's wrath against our sin. God, observing the sin of his creation, gives them up to their lusts. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, writes, The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they've demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Tim Keller puts it like this, the worst thing that could happen to you in your idolatry is to get what you want. The worst thing that can happen to us in our idolatry is to actually get that which we worship other than God. If career is your idol, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you get that promotion. If money is your idol, the worst thing that can happen to you is your investments boom. The worst thing 
that can happen to us is that we actually reach our idolatrous goals. The worst judgment is to be abandoned by God and allowed to swim as deep as we want in our own sea of sin. We tell God to stop messing with us, and he does. Like the prodigal son, the father releases us to go do that which we will. In verse 26, we see the men, they were consumed with passion for one another. That's strong language. They were ruled by these sinful desires. It's distracted them. It's controlled them. It's consumed them. It's become their life. It's become their all in all. The judgment is to be handed over to our own shameful lusts. That is, God punishes you by letting you get what you want. But not only that, Paul also speaks of a particular penalty received in themselves by those who sin in this way. That's the second thing we see about the judgment. Number two, it's some kind of due penalty. And we don't know what this penalty is, but one scholar's words I think are helpful. The recompense is the gnawing, unsatisfied lust itself, kind of what I've just talked about. He says that together with the dreadful physical and moral consequences of debauchery. Again, sin never satisfies. It even hurts us. It never satisfies. Take pornography, for example. As a pastor of this church for for 13 years, I've never had someone come up to me and say, Pastor, I've looked at pornography last night, and now I am fully satisfied. I am fully comforted by God. I never need to look at it again. Or, hey, I, I, I did this with my boyfriend or girlfriend last night. We, we crossed these lines, and, and, but now I am fully satisfied and comfortable, and I am just fine, uh, filled by God, and no need to sin in that way again. No, I've never had anyone come to me and tell me that as their pastor. Nobody has told me that. Why? Well, because We know better, right? Sin is all consuming. One taste of sin and we just want more of it. A little sin never fills our heart. It's like pouring liquid down a funnel. It doesn't last. Once you're done sinning, you start looking for the next opportunity. You start thinking about it. The the due penalty is that unsettled feeling. It's like the ring, in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You want that ring, but once you have it, you want more of it. You can't let go of it. It, You can't let it leave your sight. Holding it, keeping it, treasuring that ring is all you want. One little taste of that ring, and you want more and more and more. You might remember if you've read the books or seen the movies of Gollum, he calls the ring, my precious. It's his whole world. And that leads to consequences. You're sick to your stomach unless you can have it. Your relationships are ruined because they become servants for you to get what you want. These over-desires, they lead to heart sickness. And there, I think, in our verse, also certain moral consequences. Again, not listed, but presumed to be various types of earthly pain. Pain that comes as a result of sinful actions. So, friends, we've seen an exchange We've seen judgment. Well, let's move to our third point, grace. Number three, grace. You might wonder, Pastor, where's the grace in these verses? Are we going to have to look somewhere else in the Bible for grace? On one level, yes, we will look to the cross 
For grace, as we, as we always do, we will look to Jesus, the one who has saved sinners. But consider this first of all. How do we see grace in these verses? Well, I think first we see it in that those struggling with same-sex attraction are given this warning. Of course, all of us are sinners. Of course, all of us sinners, which is all of us. We are granted grace simply by breathing another day. But notice here, while at first it might seem harsh for Paul to take two verses, two whole verses to focus and to center on this particular sin, it's grace, it's clear. There's no denying the teaching. God's clear teaching in his Bible in the word is grace. We don't deserve it, but we get a biblical picture of marriage in the scriptures. God's clear warning in his word is also grace. God's clear teaching is grace. God's warning is grace. And so we must trust God's word and not our feelings. The Bible has the last word on what's good for us and brings him glory. Author and poet Jackie Hill Perry writes to those with same-sex attraction, you see what God has to say about homosexuality, but your heart doesn't utter the same sentiments. God's word says it's sinful. Your heart says it feels right. God's word says it's abominable, but your heart says it's delightful. God's word says it's unnatural. Your heart says it's totally normal. Do you see that there's a clear divide between what God's word says and how your heart feels? This is coming from a woman who has struggled with same-sex attraction. Oh, friends, our feelings are not trustworthy, but God's word is. Our feelings are fickle. They come and go as fast as the breeze on a windy day like we experienced just yesterday. But God's word remains forever. And God's word gives us grace and hope. Our sin doesn't have to be the end of the story. There's good news that chains can come for those who are struggling with this sin and all sin. Listen to these. Now, these are amazing. Listen to these hope-filled words that Paul writes in another one of his letters. This is to the Corinthians. This is to the Corinthian church. And this is astonishing. These words will blow your mind. First Corinthians, listen to these words from chapter 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, church, if we stop right there, if we stop at those verses, how, how are we feeling right now? We're feeling pretty bad, aren't we? We're pretty discouraged. This isn't good news. This is bad news. This is horrible news. But listen to what Paul says directly after these verses. He says all these sinners, not just those who experience same-sex attraction or have sinned in that way. He says all sinners, and he gives us that long list of sin. He says all those living lives without repentance won't inherit the kingdom of God. But he says this to the church in Corinth. Remember, he's writing to a church. He's writing to Christians. Remember that when he says, after all that he just said, and such were some of you. Let me say that again. And such were some of you. The church members 
They had previously been sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, engaged in homosexual relationships, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, all of that. That now made up the church in Corinth. Such were some of you. Beautiful words. Wonderful words. Such were some of you, but... Now, 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 this is great. This is the end here. Verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6. But you were washed. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. A Redeemer Church, aren't these words astonishing? They're incredible. These words hold out so much hope to us. They are filled with grace. There's a grace shown by Christ to sinners. Forgiveness is given at the cross of Christ and change is possible. So Rosaria Butterfield, who I quoted earlier, author of a book called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She, uh, at the time in her mid-30s, an activist, professor in New York, lived the same-sex lifestyle She read these words there, 35 years old, read these words from Romans 1, living in that lifestyle, read these words and felt the strength of them. Her initial thought was, this looks like hate speech. This looks like something designed to destroy my life. But after many years of struggle, God used these very words, these two verses, Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, to change Rosaria's heart, to lead her to repentance and faith. 21 years later, these verses still impact Rosaria's life. She's married to a pastor. They have adopted four children. The Lord has changed her affections. And friend, God can do that for you too. This is not inescapable. This is not irreversible. And it's not the only sin. Furthermore, let me be clear. Let me just say it very clearly here, just so you don't miss it. Homosexuality is not the worst sin. Now, first of all, we don't have a ranking list of sins in the scriptures, do we? There's no place we go and we see top 10 sins against a a holy God. In fact, some of us might be tempted to to, to take certain sins and make them respectable or not, not really deal with them or even to laugh about them, like gluttony, for instance. Greed, pride, heterosexual sin. This is not the unforgivable sin, but it's true. As we consider this, not all stories are like Rosaria's. For others, change might take eternity coming to free you from temptation and struggle. My friend Sam Alberry, who visited our church uh, again just a year ago, he openly talks about his struggle with same-sex attraction. And because he understands it's sin to act on his attraction, which he still feels after all these years, he's committed to remain celibate unless the Lord removes that from him. And so far, God hasn't. Why? I have no idea. I pray for my friend. Many pray for Pastor Sam. He prays. And yet the struggle remains. Pastor Sam faithfully waits for that day when either one of two things will happen. God will remove that from him or he meets Jesus face to face. And there will be no more pain 
struggle, temptation, sin. When all of his and all of our longings will be met in Christ alone. Now, I appreciate how Pastor Sam talks about his struggle. He reminds us that that's not his identity. He doesn't call himself a gay Christian. That's not his identity. He calls himself a Christian who has same-sex attraction and is committed to not committing that sin. His fundamental identity and the fundamental identity of all of us who follow Christ is that we are in Christ. That's what the book of Ephesians, another one of Paul's letters, is all about. That our identity, first and foremost, is that we are in Christ Jesus. We are, first and foremost, children of the King. Christian, if you are repenting of your sin, your sin doesn't define you. Sexuality doesn't define us. Pastor Sam is quick to remind us that the most fully human and complete person who ever walked on the face of the earth was Jesus Christ, and he never married, never experienced physical intimacy in this way. Now, intimacy in and of itself is not itself intrinsic to our being fulfilled as humans. To say that would mean somehow Christ was subhuman. But Jesus is actually the best example of what it means to be human. Pastor Kevin DeYoung asks, how did we come to think that the most intense emotional attachments and most fulfilling aspects of life can only be expressed with physical intimacy? See, church in heaven, there is no marriage between husband and wife. Marriage on earth is not ultimate. Marriage on earth is simply a pointer to something better. Marriage on earth is a pointer to a better marriage. Marriage on earth is a pointer to marriage in heaven. And so De Young continues and says, if physical intimacy is nothing up there, how can we make it everything down here? Now, marriage and intimacy is not ultimate. Singleness is not second class. And while marriage is wonderful, friends, it also isn't the answer to free us from ungodly sexual desires. Just to tell you, to tell those of you who are not married, we just say it that sin and temptation don't automatically or miraculously disappear at the wedding altar. No earthly marriage isn't ultimate. What's ultimate? Well, what's ultimate is our relationship with Jesus. And so, friend. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with same-sex attraction, we love you. We love you. We love you and we are praying for you. And the most loving thing that I can say to you and to all of us today is that the only true and perfect love is found in Jesus. Jesus loved and Jesus loves his people enough to leave heaven to come to earth, to live and to, to feel, to, to, to be tempted but not sin, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be nailed to a cross, to face the full wrath of God, to take the judgment talked about in our verses today upon himself, to free his people from their sins, on the third day, he rose from the dead, showing that, yes, indeed, he has taken his people's sins. Now, friend, I don't know why you're struggling. If you're struggling with this, I can't answer that question. I wish I had an easy solution for you. I wish I, didn't, I had an easy answer for you. But I don't. 
If you struggle with a sin, pray. Pray. Ask God for deliverance. Let this be your impossible prayer for 2023. We talked about it last week, all of us praying impossible prayers. Let this be your impossible prayer for the year. Talk to God about it. He's your loving Father. He loves you. Talk to him about your struggle, your confusion, your desires, your feelings. He is trustworthy. Be open with God and be open with others. Of course, this is not an exhortation to be open with with everyone or everyone all at once. If you're wrestling with this sin, perhaps let your community group leader know. Let a trusted friend know. Come talk to one of the, the elders. We would love to walk alongside you in this. Wrestling with same-sex attraction doesn't disqualify or define you. Let me say that one more time. Wrestling with same-sex attraction doesn't disqualify or define you. Listen to what Professor Doug, Doug Moo says. He writes, Paul therefore endorses the Old Testament and Jewish view. Homosexual relations violate the order of creation established by God for all people. Believers ought to judge our culture by biblical standards and not force the Bible into the mold of our culture. Yet, now this is an important part here, yet in a laudable insistence on maintaining biblical standards, we should not go further than Scripture. And here's the point. The Bible does not brand as sinful a homosexual orientation as such, only the indulgence of that orientation in lustful attitudes or actual sex. You see what... what Doug Moo is saying here, all of us fight various temptations. All of us are tempted in various ways and have to fight. We have to fight for pure thoughts. We have to fight for godly actions. The temptation or orientation isn't sin, but it's the indulgence in a lust for those sins or actions thereof. And so, friend, if this is you, I urge you and exhort you to be courageous, to be courageous and to fight, to fight the sin, to seek the support of others. To our youth, our teenagers, our youth, our teens, even our tweens, if you're facing confusion regarding these matters, regarding what we've talked about today, I urge you to talk to your parents or to talk to one of your youth leaders. Don't keep this hidden. We want, we want to walk alongside you. And parents, if your children open up to you or your children talk to you about these things, be patient. Be patient with them. Listen and then listen some more and then listen some more. Be gentle, kind. Be a safe place. Church, there are at least three wrong ways we can respond to this issue and to these verses. One is that in, in an effort to love or to connect to the culture around us. We can either downplay or deny God's teaching on this. This is happening, you might know, in churches and even denominations around the world. They're so-called affirming churches, welcoming this lifestyle, even celebrating it in officiating same-sex wedding ceremonies. They say that their motive is love, but it's not love. Affirming is the opposite of love. One of the most unloving things we can do as a church is to support sin of any kind. To celebrate sin, this would be similar to celebrating someone's pornography addiction here on Sunday morning or someone's heterosexual adultery. Having a ceremony here for someone's lust or someone's pride to be 
Loving is to be biblical. Or secondly, another possible response to the church would be to call this the unforgivable sin. It would be to not welcome people who are same-sex attracted through our doors. Oh, Lord, would this never be true of our church? I say, a horrifying response. And so I tell us, Redeemer Church, we need to be a welcome church. Why? Well, remember the main point of Romans. God has welcomed us into his family so that we can now welcome others into his family for the glory of God. A third response would be to joke about it. Many of us have heard the jokes. Maybe we need to repent of jokes or how we've talked about it, but this is no laughing matter. Paul does none of those here. He does call it serious sin, but then we get a long list of sins. And friends, if this doesn't fit you, next week there's a list of 21 sins. There's a, a, a list of vices or list of sins, 21 overlapping sins that the Apostle Paul is going to give us in verses 28 through the end of the chapter. None of us are off the hook. All of us need grace. Friends, all of us need Jesus. Redeemer Church, we all need Jesus. We only understand the gospel when we realize that we're the worst sinner we know. We only rightly understand the cross when we see that we are condemned without Jesus, that Jesus came and died for us. So church, if someone brings this issue up to you, what do you do? Well, first you realize this person is made in the image of God, has a soul just like you. And you care for them and you, you help them in any way you can. You pray for them. You walk alongside them. You connect them to the church community and you be patient. And we all be patient. You may be tempted if someone came in here struggling with same-sex attraction to, to rebuke them immediately or harshly or strongly because of what God's word says. But how do we normally handle sin? What about someone brand new to the congregation who's maybe living with their boyfriend or, or girlfriend or struggling with heterosexual sin or struggling with whatever it is, greed or pride? No, we, we confront the issue. We eventually confront it, but we walk with people slowly. Not too slow, but not too fast either. Let's make it easy for us as a church to talk about these kinds of heart matters. Oh, would Redeemer Church be a safe place where we can talk about these things with one another? Just to be clear, same-sex attraction is not just an issue for non-Christians. This is something Christians struggle with too. I mentioned Pastor Sam earlier, perhaps some of you here today. Pastor Tim Keller says that churches should feel more like the waiting room at a hospital than the waiting room for a job interview. Now, many of you are going in for job interviews these days. What do you try to do in a job interview? Well, you try to look as competent and impressive as you can. You try to hide your weaknesses. But what about a, a doctor's waiting room? Well, first of all, we assume that those in the waiting room are, are sick that they need help. That's why they're there. Well, friends, this is much closer to what should happen in the church. All of us are sick. All of us are in need. No, the church is a hospital for sinners. Each and every one of us needs Jesus, and, each, and every one of us needs each other. A mark of a healthy church is that we talk openly about these things. And I know this is hard for many of us. I know in our particular earthly cultures, in our particular honor and shame cultures, there's no way that we share about these things. You're saying, Pastor Dave, there's no way that we open up and talk about these things. And I get that, and I know that, and I believe that. And I, and I 
I, I try to understand that, and yet at the same time, we see, friends, Redeemer Church, that biblical culture always supersedes our earthly culture, doesn't it? Biblical culture is always the primary culture. We are citizens of heaven more than we are citizens of our particular countries. We can open up because God is ready to overflow with his grace. This past summer, I'll close with this. Our family, they were given a gift to spend a few days at a a place called the Great Wolf Lodge. Now, this place is essentially part hotel and part water park, most of which is an indoor water park. But what's most striking and perhaps most fun for the young kids is what you see upon the entrance to the indoor water park. You see a group of kids standing on a bridge, most of them giggling with one another. And above them is a gigantic bucket filled up with water. You can imagine what happens next. and You'll see a picture on the screen of this. That bucket, it turns, I'll get out of the way, it turns every five minutes dropping 4,000 liters of water on kids, on adults, every five or six minutes. It goes on and then on and on all throughout the day. The so-called tipping bucket fills up and then empties out all day. Friend, when you repent of your sin, God delights to pour out his grace upon you. It overflows from him. It's a bucket full of grace that he drenches you with, a fountain of every blessing, a fountain filled with blood. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, you can come to him with any sin. And even next week, that list of 21 sins, you can come to Jesus and he will forgive you. He will overflow you with his grace. Jesus can save anyone. Jesus can save anyone, and Jesus can save everyone. 21 sins, that's for next time. We might feel overwhelmed, but when we we come to Jesus, we get grace. So be encouraged, friend, and come back next week for even more grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. We don't deserve one drop of it, and yet your cup of grace, your bucket of grace overflows on us, a never-ending grace. And not just one bucket every five minutes, but indefinitely. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that there is grace and there is hope for everyone in this room. Would we follow not our hearts or our feelings, but your word? Comfort our hearts as we walk with Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.